All right, welcome back to the Security Conversations podcast. A guest that needs no introduction. Shane Huntley is the director of Google's Threat Analysis Group, TAG TAG. First of all, what is TAG and what do you do over there? Thanks, Ryan. So Google's Threat Analysis Group is the part of Google that and looks into serious threat actors coming against Google and our users and disrupts them to try and keep users safe. So we've been doing this for about 12 years and we look at a range of different threat actors. You know, government-backed threat actors are a huge part of our work. We've also expanded into looking at disinformation threat actors and also serious cybercrime because they're a growing threat for us as well. But our job is to sort of really understand the enemy and then do something about it. And who is the enemy? Anyone doing anything malicious against Google users? Anyone doing anything malicious against the computing ecosystem that you touch? Like, help me understand, like, specifically, what is the tag mission and focus? And in a little bit, how does it differ from what Project Zero is doing and some of the other security units coming out of Google? Like, where where is the separation there? Yeah, so... Like, I think at Google, organization charts are more of a guidance than a hard barrier anyway. But I suppose what we really focus on is kind of understanding the people that could come against our users and understanding how it can really affect our products and how we can, and also the places where we can do something about it. Um, it's sort of like a moot point to a little degree about like what the difference is between the entire ecosystem and Google users because. There's not that many people who don't use Google in some form. So really to secure Google users, you have to kind of secure the entire incident. Um, so now I was going to say, where, where do people see your work? Where's the output? Uh, like where's the final output for the average end user one or for enterprise or like, you know, the people you're protecting, where do they see it or, or do they even see it? Is it a lot of magic in the background protecting them before they even know? Yeah. Let me understand where tag fits. Yeah. So I think there's a couple of missions here. We like, so we, what we use of our understanding kind of tries to protect users in a number of ways, right? So Google was formed in 2010, just after Google had the Aurora incident from China where Google itself was targeted by Chinese government. So TAG was formed as a result of the Aurora hack? Yes, it was formed directly after that and really kind of formed out of the incident response and the threat work that was being done during Aurora. So that was our biggest goal. Like when I joined TAG at that you know, early date in 2010, just after Aurora, that was our number one goal. It still is, right? Stop Google getting hacked by government actors. And that still is our sort of like number one mission. But over time, we sort of expanded that mission as well because we can't just defend against Google itself getting hacked against these actors. We also see these actors coming after our users on Gmail and other platforms. We also see them doing disinformation. We also see the wider ecosystem as Android. So we really have expanded out this sort of understanding of protections. So the places you see this protection is like, for a long time, we were sort of behind the scenes, right? We, we do a bit more of this blogging and podcasting or whatever now to like expose stuff. But we were sort of happy being in the background in the past, right? So our primary goal was to work out what the threat actors were doing and then build the protections. So that's one of the advantages of being sort of a, a platform threat team like this. And sort of like my goal isn't to like, you know, I don't have to rely on writing some blog to get things fixed. If I see how the Iranian government is getting past the spam filters on Gmail, I work directly with the spam team to actually help get those blocks. And that's where most of our work's going, to actually get those direct protections in. We also have consumer-facing protections where we sort of do warnings, like warning users they're the target of government-backed threats. We do some publishing of information, but we also do direct protections as well. There's actually things in my team where 
our knowledge and both the technical systems we build, but also the intelligence directly feeds into products to make sure that you know more attacks are blocked in, are blocked by Gmail to make sure things are booted off the Play Store and you know takedowns we're doing with YouTube around uh, coordinated inauthentic behavior. So all of those things are like a big range of stuff. When we did our planning session and looked at all the different outputs of tag, it wasn't one or two things. It really went to a lot of different places in the company. So you've got like your like a, a, a solid long time background in this space, this kind of nation state type adversary things. Can we talk a little bit about your own background? Because you come out of an offensive security background as well. I mean, some of it might still be classified. Can you talk a little bit about like your own entry into this? Did you join Google pre-tag or did you go and join Google because of tag post Aurora? Help me understand like your little bit of your background and how you made the, the, the pathway into Silicon Valley. Sure, sure. So, like, my background, like, I was a, you know, teenage hacker type and always into this sort of security stuff from a very, very young age. Um, I did some time in the Australian military, did some work in sort of, like, cyber intelligence and sort of, like, defensive projects there. Um, But then for a while after I left the military, I worked in Australian intelligence um, and I worked on the sort of cyber side of things. What does that even mean? Like I work. Uh, I'm trying to be careful here. Right? I think we've of... been more open about that now. But like my my title was the technical director of network exploitation technologies. So, right. Uh, no, no. I ask this because it's a weird thing, and just for conversation's sake, you know, it's it's very strange how in the West and in the U.S. here specifically, like we idolize you guys, the guys who come out of a military background and the guys who've put in time, you know, doing these things. Yet, if you did this in another country and you're somehow, and in in Israel, for instance, every startup comes out says they're unit eighty two hundred elite people. So people kind of glom onto this kind of association with .gov sector as a trophy to hold up. Do you view it that way? That's a really interesting question. I I think. I don't. Uh, I like, didn't. I worked at Kaspersky years ago. Yeah. And you know the Kaspersky connection, right? It's like the Kaspersky controversy, right? It's like if you have any association at all with the government in the past, you're suddenly besmirched forever, but it doesn't It doesn't affect us. Like, so how... Yeah, I, I, it, it does sometimes, right? I think people often get tarred with different parts of things, right? So I think about this a lot when I've been building the team, actually. I think there is, like, great people that have a big variety of backgrounds, I think there are some very good people that have done government service and come from that place, such as, and I think I've bring some decent skills and have done all right here. But I don't think it's the only place to get that. I think actually one of the things I've tried to do very much building TAG is actually to try and bring a range of people. So I've got people from not just sort of Western intelligence. There's actually very few of us overall compared to most threat teams, but bringing in like new graduates, people from an engineering background, people from a range of countries and, you know, tagging. How big is TAG? TAG's about 50 people and we're spread across um, a presence, US, uh, Canada and Zurich and in Switzerland is our primary locations, but expanding to Australia later in the year. Yeah, I bring that up because it feels like there's a lot of dot, there's a lot of security researchers doing offensive work for governments in in legitimate places, you know, counterintelligence, uh, counter uh, terrorism the, in some crazy places. We've also had the story recently about ex NSA hackers who end up in Dubai and then they end up getting uh, uh, punished. And so I'm, I'm I'm just curious when you're hiring people and you're building a team and so on. Are, are, are those types of folks like red flagish? Is are you thinking along the lines of like ethics and perils? Because 
we're now threat intel brokers, right? Like you're the threat intel guy. You're an information broker. You're like a fourth party collector playing in this game anyway, right? Do you do you worry about the ethics and perils of that stuff at all? I, I think ethics is a huge part of this. We always have to focus very much on the ethical side of things. And I think part of hiring anybody and like finding who's a good fit for the team is also very much about sort of like making sure that, you know, their ethics are aligned with what we're trying to do that you're hiring people that you can trust. And also that, you know, the from a point of view of like what they want to do is in like conjunction with what the team needs to do. So there's many right. people that aren't a great fit for tag. Um, but, you know, like I hire people that, you know, I feel I can trust that are able to do this mission and are signed on to this mission, right? And I believe in our mission, right? I'm not saying it's the only mission, but our mission of actually defending this stuff and trying to, you know, make make things safer by killing exploits and actually countering all these threats, I think is a valid mission, even if it's, you know, other people have other missions and other ways of seeing it. From 2009, the creation of TAG to now, how have you seen like the, I don't, I hate to use the word evolution, but like this gradual uh, uh, visibility into nation state operations. We know a lot more than we knew back then. Aurora was the singular event that made everyone like, you know, here and the next stand up. Today there's, five reports every week on APT activity hitting big companies, right? So volume seems to have increased. Visibility seems to have increased. We'll have a conversation about like zero day discovery yeah. in the wild and why we're better at that. But how, when you looked at like your career in tag over the years, cause you're more connected and you're, you've, you have the telemetry to really tell us where we're going. Have things gotten better? Have things gotten progressively worse? Where are we in the ecosystem as like our ability to defend ourselves from these apex ad, uh, adversaries? Wow, there's a lot there. I'd say there's like there's been, there's been a constant evolution, right? So I think you know when Aurora came out, it was a really big deal that sort of Google actually said that they had the incident, and you know there was twenty other companies, and not a single other one came forward there at that time too. So like at that time, this was all hush hush and we weren't talking about it. And actors were able to do whatever they want because everyone was like too scared to talk about it. So right. now- There used to like, be a throwaway line about like some targeted attack happening. It's like a limited targeted attacks we've seen. That was the extent of what would be an APT report back into the day, right? Yeah. And it's like, but then it's evolved over time and people, like people when tag started were going like, why does Google have a team that like is looking at government backed threats? And like, we'd get questions on that. But now fast forward to 2022, like my biggest question is, is Google doing enough against government-backed threats? We should be doing more about this. So we have seen this evolution of the defensive side has become more in the open. As to whether we're actually doing better against it, I think we are, but I think this is a cat and mouse game too, right? The attackers are also getting better. We've also seen this publicity and everybody's seeing how successful this is from the big actors is causing this sort of like other countries getting into it. Like if you look at a map of the world which we have about which countries we've seen threat activity from you know there's not that many countries that don't have at least one entry in our database now so we are seeing this go down to more and more different countries and also more agencies within countries and we're also seeing this troubling sort of like commodification of you know companies selling this capability as to sort of in some cases repressive regimes or yeah or i want to get into that have these capabilities doing this and that's my, one of the biggest concerns I want to get into the private sector offensive actors and some of the work you've done there, you know, not only just raising visibility and so on, but you guys are involved in court cases. I mean, going the legal route as well to, to, to try to uh, 
respond to that type of stuff. When you talked a little bit about the map expanding, in the beginning it used to be the big powers had a cyber operations and we kind of knew who they were and the reports, you would read a report and you would kind of automatically could make that link. When you start to see this map expanding and you see APT activity in Latin America, in parts of Africa, in parts of the world where it's strange, are, where, where are the strangest places that surprise you the most to see kind of like focused, targeted APT activity? Can you give me a sense of some places that it's really, really fascinating and interesting comes out of the blue? And, and where, where are you seeing like interesting trends on that side? So I suppose the, you know, the, the facts that when we talked publicly before that like the fact that Vietnam in terms of where people are targeted makes number two. And a lot, a lot of that comes down to the ocean lotus, like is, is interesting. I think the one that personally and more for like, you know, funny reasons is because we had this big map and then we had this like big white bit in the middle of Asia from Mongolia was just totally white because we had nothing there. But I think we discovered like one tiny bit of activity from, I think from like one or two policemen doing some fishing or something like that. So I got to fill in their map. So you can kind of fill this in that even Mongolia is doing this to some degree that like somebody somewhere, anybody who has some intelligence or police or other goals is doing something in cyber now. And I think that's part of it. So there's this whole variation of capability and it's not all about who has the sexiest exploits and who has the sexiest things right like like that, most, none of that doesn't matter in the, in the grand scheme it really doesn't matter if the victim is it becomes a victim right yeah like you only measure somebody by their success at reaching their goals right like if, and even the top top threat actors like the russian ones got a lot of good stuff in 2016 via phishing right so if you can achieve your goals by sending dumb phishing messages like that doesn't make you a a more effective, a less effective hacker than somebody not achieving their goals via like really cool firmware or baseband exploits. Let me ask you a strange, hard question. Is it ever appropriate for a government to have a cyber operation, a cyber malware operation in your mind? I mean, is there, are there cases where you can say legitimate use case? I think, I think, like, I think especially if someone coming from this intelligence background, right? I'd say that, you know, intelligence collection is a valid function of governments, right? So I think governments have kind of agreed it's one of the oldest professions ever is, is intelligence collection. So you definitely see that intelligence collection isn't in its own right immoral. That does not mean, however, that sort of like they should get a free pass from anybody whose job it is to defend against them. So the spies are going to spy, but, you know, my job is to secure Google users and to sort of like make a more secure ecosystem. I do think we need to balance this very carefully. I think there's some very arguments at the moment on equity sort of stuff at the moment. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a very nuanced conversation. Yeah. I don't want to put you on the spot into kind of putting your head on a block for which is, no, 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 I, which is not. I, but the conversations around like, uh, 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 you know, targeting pedophiles and police having access to things to go after counterterrorism operations. I mean, there are nuances to the conversation about legitimacy. Yeah, I, I, I suppose that like my biggest concern with that, which I'd say, and I'm happy to put my head on the block here, is that, you know, some of these arguments come down to wanting to make things less secure because of these cases, right? And I can tell you, when I look across the ecosystem, when I see what's happening, when I see the threats we're facing in government, everywhere else, like, like I think this, they're the only people saying that the world is too secure at the moment and we need to make it less secure. Like, I honestly think we should, like... You're talking, you're talking about the encryption like, debate. Sorry? Are you talking about just the encryption debate and that whole kind of... Yeah, I think about encryption weakening. debate. I think about vulnerabilities equity process, about how many, how many exploits people are keeping. I think it's actually wider than that. 
So, and it comes down to even how much the government invests in their offensive side side of NSA versus the defensive side. Like, you know, I'm not the expert, but that, that balance should be a real debate about do we get more out of having better offensive capability as a country or are we so vulnerable that at the moment we really need to prioritise more on defence? And I, I hope those conversations are happening and being done very thoughtfully. And the addendum to that question is, is it ever appropriate for an anti-malware vendor or some sort of defensive technology unit to turn a blind eye whitelist things that in their mind might be legitimate and ethical because it's just that's the aden- the additional question to is oh these are friendlies so we can maybe not detect or maybe whitelist there's that l- level of the conversation where do you stand there are you in the firm defenders must defend everything camp i i think i, I think we have to play our correct roles here right so like my job is to build secure products so and say on chrome or anyone else right like i think it would be incredibly dangerous and the wrong thing to do to start like you know, whitelisting people or, you know, allowing them to do things, right? So, like, if, if we see that there is, like, a vulnerability and we know there's a vulnerability in something, then I think we have to get it fixed, right? So they can make their own decisions, but I don't think there's any way we could stand by and say, oh, we're not going to patch, we're going to leave this hole open. Because, especially because you, it's it never really stops with one actor anyway. Even if you, you like the actor that's currently exploiting this vulnerability in whole, what we see is that these things actually evolve. And if you don't fix the vulnerability, you don't fix the technique, you don't do the protections now when it's the, you know, you know, quote unquote good actor, then you're going to go see it down the track until eventually you have like ransomware operators doing big destructive attacks from something you didn't fix earlier on. So that's why I think we do need to get there quickly and sort of like fix ahead of time. And, you know, this is a good force on force two to encourage that people actually if they are going to do these activities do it well and to increase the cost i want this to be not easy for people to do right here's a weird question how do you like wake up for work getting ready to motivate and energize your team to go do this work in in a in a framework where it feels defeatist i'll tell you why like Assume breach is a normal part of a security program. Like everyone should assume they're compromised and go hunting. Like that's the status quo. People like you say, hey, if you haven't found an APT in your network, it's because you haven't looked hard enough. Right? It's like this. I this no, no, I mean, I mean that this is the this is the security expert advice. I'm not when I say people like you, I mean like uh, in our industry we tell, we we kind of normalize that mindset of like listen you're already compromised everything is owned like just go hunting and try to do some defense and try to do blocking and tackling the reality is a lot there's a lot of nuance there but the reality is everyone is owned like there's a ransomware epidemic there's nation state reports popping every day there's compromise like how do you wake up and get energized to do this in this world where it just feels like you're just kind of chasing our tails is that fair um, I, a little bit, but not really, right? So, like, I like I'm actually against some of this security defeatism, right? So, like, I think it is true to say that, like, you know, if you have like the biggest nation states in the world coming after you, they're able to like, and they're willing to put infinite resources. They're always willing to do something against you, right? But like, what I've seen day in day out is like, you know, sometimes I think we lionize attackers, and we actually say that they are much better than they are. And if you see of how they're getting through, you see that they can be stopped, right? 
You know, and day in, day out, they're not being stopped. But Shane, they're not being stopped. That's the thing. The reality is they're not being stopped. I mean, you talk about expansion of APT activity to places where you don't need zero days. And we talk about zero day discovery being better and we're we're amazing at catching zero day. It's not even relevant. I think I, I disagree. Like I believe like and I see it day in, day out that we are stopping attacks, right? We are seeing that, you know, attacks that used to work don't. We see many like the like the vast, vast majority of the attacks coming against, say, Gmail users are actually blocked and we actually do block them getting fished and they are not compromised, right? So it isn't nearly as bad as you're making out here too, right? Like, and some of these basic protections like, you know, security keys, advanced protections, things we're doing behind the scenes actually are doing a real level of security. Just because there is like some zero day activity and some people being compromised here isn't a reason to say that they're like, Everything is everything is broken. There's no point trying. Don't even bother. Just assume everything's compromised because I hey, think we're seeing a CEO, big range of outcomes here. When the CEO of SolarWinds gets up on stage and says, listen, it's assumed breach. Like if you, you have to assume you're compromised. It feels not necessarily defeatist, but it feels like we're in this, like this is the reality. This is yeah, reality. I and I know you've told, you talk, I mean, like you, you mentioned, uh, you mentioned uh, 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 Google uh, hardware protection keys, and you mentioned some of the Gmail work and stuff that you do. Amazing work, but it's for the one percent, right? I mean, you, I look at your own multi-factor adoption numbers in Google, and the numbers are small. I look at Microsoft's MFA numbers; it's, they're tiny. I look at Twitter's; they're tiny. Like what you're talking about is for a subset of people who are advanced in their mindset about protecting things. I'm arguing. I'm let me finish. I'm arguing that. The majority of enterprises, especially mid-market and small businesses, are sitting ducks. And it's just a reality of spending a lot for very little and assuming compromise. Is that fair? It's a lot there. So yeah, I agree. And like, I think that getting things done by pushing consumers is a great thing to do, but isn't actually our biggest focus. That's one of the reasons we try and do these protections behind the scenes and we try and make things secure by default. No, I think, don't get me wrong, I am not making the case that like everything is great and that like that we aren't in a real sort of like world of hurt at present what i'm saying is that i don't think it is i don't think it is help it is not help i don't think we're helpless i think we're able to do something about it and i think doing things actually matters and i think that it's actually in some ways it's actually good because the actual average state of a lot of places is actually you know pretty damn bad like i've actually had a lot of my like peers i've actually had like friends and peers become the CISOs of companies what they they turn up and they work out like you know what there's actually a lot of basics we can do and actually increase security a lot so i think we should like so there's two ways of looking you can be a pessimist and say everything's terrible because like we haven't sorted this out and we've got all these vendors selling solutions that don't work but the flip side you can say like wow we've actually can actually increase security a lot if we do some basic stuff and get at it do protections and work at this so if you ask me how right. I'm motivated, that's how I see it is I do feel we can do something about it. We can't win totally, but it's not pointless either. What are you most proud of uh, in terms of delivery out of tag? Is there a specific thing that you hold up and say, you know what, this is my biggest or this is our, this has been our biggest contribution to a security the ecosystem. And then I'll ask you, what are you least proud of? Like, what do you, what do you, what do you expect? What did, did you expect to deliver by now that you still think, wow, we're still struggling to get this right? 
Yeah, I think this, the question's related. I think, you know, I think some of the biggest pr- things I'm most proud of, like I'm proud of the team, I'm proud of what we've built, I'm proud that like we are able to fix and block things. I, I, I am proud that like, you know, protections we're rolling out around elections and detecting and that we are part of the conversation and we are pushing forward security. Like, so I am proud on a day-to-day basis we're doing that. I suppose the part I'm sort of disappointed about, I'm sort of, disappointed in general not just us but about the industry in general about Kaiser's last conversation a little bit about how we're almost becoming blasé about it that we're also coming about the it's turning into something that we just talk about a lot of conferences and on blog posts and it's just becoming a topic of endless discussion versus the how do we actually push past this like when we started out we're sort of hoping that when we shined a light on things with Aurora and elsewhere, that this would actually have some big effect on the ecosystem and actually cause a lot of pain for the adversaries. What we're seeing now is that the same actors that are getting blogged about and talked about at conferences are still operating with relative impunity year over year. So that sort of shows we're not going to solve this through solely through like blog posts and conference talks. Uh, speaking of speaking of actors operating with impunity, 2021 was in my mind a banner year for zero day discoveries because I think we've they've always been this number of zero days happening. We just as an industry suddenly discovered 82 in the wild zero days in 2021. If you count Axelion and all the other things, I know Project Zero tracks some other like the bigger ones in some other places. Are we better at finding them or is the volume just increasing or is that expansion of, you know, adversaries across the globe adding to this? Where, where do you think, do you think, why, why so much sudden surge in zero day activity? Yeah, I, I think, um, there's a number of things. I think it's both actually. So I think there's more people hunting for them and there's more people producing them. So I do think it's big business too. That's threat intelligence business is big business. The the business of creating reports and selling feeds and so on. So I mean, there's a there's a big financial incentive to put more eyeballs at it, right? There is, and there's also, um, but I don't think it's only about that too, right? And I don't think that's the biggest drive from many people doing it. It's also one of the more interesting parts, to be honest. Like actually, hunting zero day is actually a lot more interesting than hunting fishing. Sorry to say. So that's one of the reasons I, you know, we find it's also more interesting to talk about. Um, I think, you know, Maddie Stone, like uh, my colleagues from Project Zero have spoken on this a fair bit, but like there's also other sides of like part of it is also that exploits are getting harder and actually getting patched too, right? So like often like many years ago, you could run around with a zero day and run around with it for years without it getting fixed and then it wasn't found. These days you actually, you know, they only have a certain life. So that actually causes people to have to find more of them and they actually get burnt and discovered. So that causes some churn. You also need a chain of exploits too, right? So to actually do a browser exploitation at the moment, it actually is often a sequence of exploits to escape from the renderer process to like then, you know, escape the sandbox and then maybe another stage. So there's more exploits to that. And it's also just changes in the ecosystem, right? So that like, you know, you went from, and it's also like, you know, early when I started, like it was often Word, PDF and flash exploits and none of those were particularly hard and they were fairly universally applicable now you're having to have very complex browser chains i used to be an exploit guy but when i look at modern exploits they like blow my mind about like what people have to do these days so i think it's a combination of all those things but also i think the market has to be growing right there there are people that are buying exploits buying capabilities from vendors and that market is actually creating the demand from 
you know, great researchers, unfortunately, going into the market of finding zero days to give to repressive regimes so they can do their thing. And that's how the market is kind of being rewarding at present. I think we can change that, I hope. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, you bring up exploitation. I used to go to Pond to One in the early days when Dino would use or, or Charlie would use a single Safari exploit to take over a MacBook. Today you go to Pond to One, it's five exploits chained together with five vulnerabilities jumping out the sandbox here and there. Here's the reality though. Every, every, every machine falls, right? It still happens. That, and that's where, that's where the nuance of the conversation gets, you get into this, you know, are you a pessimist or an optimist? Because at the end of the day, the outcomes are the same. Guys are still winning point to one at alarming rates. You go to Tianfu Cup in China, like the, the, the level of exploitation there is through the roof, but the outcomes are still the same. So have we gotten any better? Not nearly better enough. So like, as one of the things when I spoke at OffensiveCon, like as the sort of like enemy in the gates of being the sort of like the one defensive guy and, you know, talking at OffensiveCon, I, I encourage people, like I totally believe we need to be investing more into fundamentally making software more secure. And I think there are some efforts there of like Fuchsia, there's people looking at like Rust, but like, yeah, we, we just got to stop doing the same thing over and over again. And I think this needs to be a much bigger global push because I agree that like we are seeing, you know, many of the same sort of issues of type confusion and uh, various like, you know, memory corruption. It's the same memory corruption issues. issues over and over again, including at your own shop. I mean, when you look at the Chrome patch, you look at a batch of Chrome patches every week. It's like 90% of it is memory corruption issues that are just continuing to haunt uh, uh, code bases, right? Yeah, yeah, I think it's it's across the board, right? So the, we have to. I think we have to work out a way to build more secure software at some point, and we have to make we have to work out how to incentivize those trade offs. Um, because yeah, it's that that's the challenge. But again, like I know we're totally pessimistic, and there's also because there are other things coming too, right? I think some of the protections built into silicon. I think some of the efforts of like making it harder to deploy as well. That's actually one of the things we want to do with this binding of exploits is we want to make it that you have to be very careful when you're using your zero days. Because if you're not careful, then somebody like, you know, tag Project Zero or many other teams are going to find and get your exploits patched very quickly. And I think making it so attackers have to be a lot more careful will slow them down and let people be compromised. So it's all a matter of like not extremes, but about trying to make people as secure as possible and to minimize the sort of like exposure here to these threats. And impose cost on adversary. I mean, that's the biggest part of it is imposing costs, burning their zero days, you know, killing their bugs, that kind of thing, imposing additional costs. Because you're never going to get rid of them. They're too resourceful and they're, they're, their missions are too important, especially at the nation state level. Uh, I want to ask about sharing of IOCs. Because I know this is a, it's a hot button topic on, on, on Twitter and tag gets brought up in this a lot. Talk a little bit about like, what's your policy around IOC sharing and when IOCs get released, when samples get released. Because I have examples of places where, you know, you told me as a, as a, as a, let's say I'm a Google user or someone in the industry. Hey, there's a guy walking through your neighborhood. He's got a fancy key that could pop every door in your neighborhood. Good luck. Like, that's how I feel when you don't tell me who the guy is, what kind of, what is he looking to steal? Am I a potential target? Help me understand. Yeah you know, your own philosophy around it. Yeah, so I think the, there's, there's a couple of things here, right? One is that, like, you'll you see we've been becoming more forward-leaning on this as well. 
But like, I have a core principle on this, right? So like, my goal was to work out what actually protects people the most. Not what is going to make the Twitter pundits happy, not what is going to make the, the threat intel industry people happy, but what actually protects people. And this is a constant trade-off, right? Like we actually are a real intelligence team. So we have to balance, okay, like we could produ produce a whole bunch more details now of exactly how we found this, but then it's going to make it a lot harder to find the next one. We also have the issue when like an exploit is brand new that we know if we do too many details too early, then suddenly, you know, we, and we've seen this as like other threat actors are going to immediately be trying to like reproduce or take or get a copy of this exploit and then start throwing it around. So we always do these, these are operational OPSEC decisions that you're making in real time to kind of limit what you're putting out there publicly in the early days and so on. Understandable. And right, I see, it's like, what is actually useful too, right? Like, so if we find something and we know it was sent to like, or, or we know it was a small number of users and it was targeting like a specific, you know, you know, group of activists or whatever. And, you know, we've taken it down in safe browsing, we've got the thing patched, whatever. So just like producing exactly, and it was, you know, taken down, it's not there anymore. It's not a valid IOC. Like how, you, how, much, how useful is that, the specific details? Not necessarily as useful as some people make out, but we're always making. If I'm a CISO, right? But if I'm the CISO of the security program and I want, and my company is potentially might be exposed there, and I want to go do some retro hunting to see if this thing may have been in my organization, and you can't help me, you tell me that a guy is like, if I'm an aerospace guy, you tell me these guys are interested in aerospace and so on, I'm in that victim profile, and then I'm kind of sitting around, there is no sample, there's no data from you to help me go hunting, and now I feel like. And that's the argument. I yeah. feel like you left me in this kind of lurk. Yeah, and I think you'll see now that we do do a lot more IOCs. We are doing a lot more. We have come a long way in this. Um, but yeah, it's just the trade-offs I talked about, right? And we try and do that. We're also, we also do a lot more, um, you know, specifically, we reach out a lot to specific targets as well. So, And we do a lot behind the scenes and a lot in trusted forms too. So just because somebody, um, like, you know, sometimes we have that to you should. With... You do agree that you can do better. Can we? I think we always, can I think we... everybody can do better at anything. But yes, I think we can do better at this. I do think, and I think we are getting better at this and we will continue to get better at this and we're investing more into it. Yes. I'm can we talk a little bit about... We're per pretending we're perfect on this topic. No, it's okay. I don't want to pick a fight with you. I'm just, it's like, I can't have Shane on the podcast and not yeah. ask about release of IOCs because this is a running thing. Whenever you guys on Project Zero put out blog posts, I mean, the Uyghur stuff, it was kind of, even the even the forced entry stuff, like they, they, there, there isn't a sample available outside of what Google might have or, 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 or the Citizen Lab people might have. And I, like the rest of us feel like we're in the dark. So it's just a conversation piece. Yeah, it's um. I Totally understood. We'll try and do more. Don't, don't always, we don't always have details too, right? Sometimes we're getting criticized of like, sometimes we know what we know. Like we, uh, I think we're damn Just more, what we do, but yeah. More data to help the rest of us go hunting. That's all. I mean, I don't think that's like a ridiculous ask. I'll take the request back to the team. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, I want to ask about uh, private sector offensive actors before I let you go. Because uh, your, your team has put in a lot of work into kind of tracking the big one, obviously, is NSO Group, and there's lawsuits and so on happening there. But there's also a, a bunch of others in the Israeli ecosystem, including here in the West, including in the U.S. and so on. How do you view that? You mentioned it earlier, but how do you view that industry? Is it expanding? 
has the NSO noise and, and, and drama kind of put things on pause? Help me understand what you know about this ecosystem, and not only in Israel, but here in the US where there have been names called as well. Yeah, I, I think, I don't think this industry is like, you know, collapsing in any way so far, unfortunately. Well, you know, I it's do, profitable, right? It's, yeah, it's very profitable. And if you look at some of the numbers, like I, I still almost can't believe some of the numbers about, you know, like how much it's advanced. If you look back to say things like 10 years ago with the Finn Fisher people who are apparently now bankrupt, like, you know, they were talking about like millions of dollars and you start looking at some of the fairly big numbers of NSO. This is, you know, incredibly profitable industry. So I don't think you're going to shut it down. I think the pressure will make things harder. And I think we're starting along that path. But the moment, I'd say, what we're seeing more is sort of like reforming, people shifting around. I will say on these ecosystems are actually very complicated. And it's true on the, for the Indian hacker for hire stuff too, right? Like it's hard to draw a line between these, these companies and people as they move around, as they reform, they do new entities. And I think that's same of the, are you tracking the individuals as they move from company to company or the actual underlying actors? And that's actually quite difficult. So um, I don't think it's going away. I think the pressure is increasing. And I think that, you know, it's going to become tougher to operate. And, you know, what I've told other people as well is they're like, I'd be wary of getting into this industry if you're a hacker. It might pay short, well, well in the short term, but like I think what we're seeing at the moment with like indictments, with like further pressure, and what it looks like on your resume, I would encourage any of the listeners to think very carefully before pursuing this as a profession. Yeah, and it, it's it's really interesting space because I feel like again it ties back to the earlier argument about where places people feel that this is legitimate use of code to go after certain ty- types of targets. So like, you know, there's there's a certain mentality thing there. Yeah, uh, there's a lot of use cases we're seeing as well, right? Like, you oh, know, these 100%. actors are claiming that it's all going after terrorists or whatever, but then, you know, again and again, people like Citizen Lab are exposing that, like their targeting goes well beyond what, like I think the society would agree is useful use of this technology. Uh, let me close on this, Shane. You and I are gonna have this conversation again in a year. One year from today, have, do you see things better? Do you see things status quo? Or are you like me that thinks everything is just, we, 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 it's a lost cause and we're just chasing our tails? I think some things will be better. I don't think everything will be better, but I think you'll be able to look back in 12 months time and say that certain things have certainly got better and certain actors were disrupted. I do think you'll have a whole bunch new exciting incidents and a whole bunch of bad things that went wrong that shouldn't have gone wrong and things we could have done better as well. We're not going to solve it in the year, but I think some bits will have gone better. Can I ask quickly, I know I mentioned that was the last question, but uh, North Korea. North Korea, Chrome O'Days, targeting security researchers using fake pen test type companies. You guys have been very, very closely tracking them. There is a certain mindset around North Korea no skills, like uh, unsophisticated actor going after cryptocurrency people. What is real as it, as it relates to the, the, the strength, the posture of the North Korean threat actor ecosystem? Can you, are, are they to be taken seriously? Are we, like, help me understand. Yeah, they absolutely should be taken seriously, right? Like people think about this like, oh yeah, North Korea can't do that or whatever and undermine them, right? But like doing this hacking stuff and doing this hacking stuff is not that hard, right? Get pe- getting people together like and who are like some smart college age kids and like putting on pen tracing training learning these technical things like that's all you need to build one of these capabilities right 
And, you know, I joked that, like, building an APT capability is not rocket science. And North Korea has rocket science, right? Like, these people can build intercontinental ballistic missiles and, like, nuclear weapons, but we're surprised that they can do pen testing and hacking type stuff. Like, it's not that surprising. It's not that hard to do this hacking stuff, unfortunately. So, yeah, they definitely are a serious actor, and they're very prolific and, you know, going all the way back to the Sony hack, they are also reckless in what they do, right? So, in some ways, they're a more scary actor because they don't have the constraint, the... um, restraint that some of the more mature powers do so i think everybody should be taking north korea very serious in this space all right shane i'll leave it there that's 40 minutes of strong strong content thank you very much for coming on sharing your expertise and in exactly a year come back let's see let's see if the pessimist in me uh, uh gets changed i hope so i hope so too so it's been a great been lots of fun great talking to you thank you shane